it's crazy like how people overcomplicate how they can make money but honestly i was just like trying to do what made sense to me so i was like great this guy wants to i can clearly see is incentivized to promote to 20 people and in order to collect the money first i said if your friend decides to order they have to give me a 40 dollar bond and when the shoes come and they pay the rest you can give me the remaining 40 when we swap the shoes just in case you order a size 43 silver pair of shoes that i can't sell to anybody else and also main problem is i don't have the money to pay for upfront anyway (laughs) so that's the main problem but you know you just gotta pitch it the other way and then i went to nine other friends said the same thing all dudes from private schools guess that was my market by the end of that week these 10 people gave me 20 orders each so that's 200 pairs of shoes in which each i made a 40 dollar profit and that was thousand dollars profit to like 16k revenue roughly in that week hey everyone welcome to episode 77 of the so this is my why podcast i'm your host and producer lingya and today's guest is lily wu lily is currently the startup partner lead for southeast asia at stripe and the co-founder of wow pixies the first DAO to invest in the women-led web3 ecosystem she previously bootstrapped two seven-figure businesses I was also the head of programs for New Campus, a Series A edutech startup based in Singapore. In this episode, we learned about how she started her first business at the age of 16 because she was really into hip hop and wanted a pair of Adidas Jeremy Scott moonshot shoes and how she eventually starts her second business because she wanted to do an internship in China, a business that eventually generated over $1 million in yearly revenue. If you're into startups, growth hacking, and of course, NFTs and DAOs, then this is the episode for you. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. You grew up in the unusually liberal Chinese family. Your parents came from China to Australia to study fine arts. I suppose that kind of culture really seeped into the way they brought you up. Yeah, so I guess like my parents were kind of like the black sheep of their family, which is why I grew up in a relatively pretty non-Asian, I don't know, just like not that when you think of stereotypical Asian parents where they make you study or like they, you know, are very strict or they're very overbearing. Like my parents were none of those things. But I grew up loving Chinese history. I actually did Chinese dance when I was young, like ethnic dance, like Tibetan, Mongolian. (laughs) So fun fact. I actually grew up super Asian, even if my parents didn't raise me that way. And you later taught K-pop dance as well, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I was dragged into that by my friend. My parents met in Australia. My grandparents were all extremely academic and unusually academic for that era as well. Both my grandparents in my dad's side were professors. One started an aeronautics university for Beijing and the other one started a chemistry division. And both were professors at Tsinghua Beida, which are the two top universities. Even when my grandma was a woman as well, extremely educated. So when my dad was like, I'm going to become an artist, (laughs) they were pretty shocked. I feel like he kind of went through that hurdle for me. 
You said before that your parents' attitude was very much don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. How yeah. does that translate to life? Yeah, I guess I grew up with that kind of mentality, just watching how my parents act and the stories that they tell me. When they were younger and they were master's students in Australia, they would go to the World Expo and just like do portrait drawings for people. And in a day, they would make like a thousand dollars, which is crazy. In the like 1980s, right? That's like a whole person's salary in a month. But they were still very frugal and would still like walk every day instead of taking the bus, let alone like a, a taxi. They decided to do the same thing when they went to, there was a World Expo in Spain. They couldn't get a license in time to actually have a store to do people's art. So they bought a one-way ticket. That was it, $200 with them. And one night was already $100, like with a shitty hostel style, which is crazy expensive. Even now it's crazy expensive. But it was during the World Expo. So they were like, crap, we don't make money. Like we just have to go home. So they went into the World Expo, bought a attendee ticket, and then just like sat down pulled out all their art stuff and then just started like drawing portraits. And afterwards, a group of policemen had come and one of them was like telling them, hey, you got to be here tomorrow. And my dad was like, no, 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 we're not going to be here tomorrow. (laughs) And then he was like, oh, I was going to bring my girlfriend. He was like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll be here tomorrow. (laughs) After like that whole expo, like a couple of months, they went around Europe, went back, bought a car, put a down payment on a house. So that's how much cash they had made during that time. So... I was like, wow, you know, you got balls to like do that. I guess that's where it came from. And were you inspired to follow in their footsteps and do art? I guess when I was growing up, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I have a half brother. He is also a designer. And since my parents are in the art space, I grew up obviously drawing. And so I thought maybe I'll become a designer. Maybe I'll do animation. I love like Hayao Miyazaki like spirited away like I had all their videos and watched his movies so many times so I thought maybe I'll do animation in Japan or something and when you were 16 that was a pretty momentous year because your parents went back to China and only left you a hundred dollars yeah that was just after the financial crisis my parents owned a gallery at the rocks obviously that is heavily reliant on tourists. And so if no tourists are coming and they're paying expensive rent for prime location in an extremely tourist area, they had to shut that down. There was no money coming in. At the time, they left me $100. I think they didn't want to give a huge amount of money to a kid. And then I just like recklessly spend it. I think they assumed that I would just ask them for more once I ran out. But I honestly felt really bad. Also a very non-Asian thing is my parents have always been very transparent with me on their money problems. Ever since I was nine or 10, they treat me like an adult. I'm responsible for the amounts that they give me. So I was always extremely frugal with even the pocket money that they gave me. So when they gave me $100, I was like, okay, that's it for three months. (laughs) And I think my parents were just like so busy at the time. I mean, I'm not that young when I'm 16, you know, it's just like you can take care of yourself. So I tried to use that $100 as frugally as possible, maybe last like a week and a half. And then I started using my red pocket money. And I was like, you know what, I'll just look for a job. It's not a big deal. People after 13 and a half years old start working at McDonald's and KFC and fast food. I can do that. Just go work after school. So I started applying for all these jobs and for some reason, I just couldn't get a single one. 
not even a fancy job or anything, everyone would get accepted except me. Yeah, but that was a good thing for you because... Yeah, that was great. Well, thank God, because otherwise if I'd gotten that job, probably entrepreneurship wouldn't exist. I think that you're much more creative when you're facing some sort of blocker. You work around it or you'd go a different direction. I was like super obsessed at the time. I was really into hip hop. My friends got me into it and I really wanted these Adidas Jeremy Scott wing shoes. They cost $300 in Australia, kind of like the Yeezys of the day. And all the high school students were super into it. Australia wasn't that much hit by the financial crisis. It was just one quarter of recession. So our currency was doing quite well in comparison to everything else, especially to the US dollar. I used to do ballet and I met this girl a year or two before and her parents had owned an Adidas outlet in the US and I was asking her, hey, for these type of shoes, especially they're out of season, how much can you sell it to me for? And she was like, oh, these shoes are out of season. So these are $50. And I was like, whoa, from 300? That's crazy. When you convert it into Australian dollars, it was like 40 something dollars. Because Australia's middle of nowhere, shipping's also going to be $40. And I was like, wow, shipping itself is the price of the shoes. But she was like, if you can get a bulk purchase of 20, then we can do a flat fee. And I was like, great, I'm going to ask all my friends if they want to bulk buy it with me. And so I told my friends, hey, these are $40. Do you want to get it with me? And if we can get 20 people, like we can basically have like shipping free when you're 16 you don't really understand the concept of shopping online or like you don't really understand the concept of wholesale and also currency exchange and out of season and you know australia is always a season behind all of those different factors they were just like what how can there be such a big price difference like if you go to an outlet now you'll see calvin klein costs 60 dollars for a pair of underwear in australia and you will see them in the u.s for a pack of three for like 12. You should definitely go to the States to purchase. Oh yeah, I was like, wow, we live in an expensive country. <laughs> Jeez. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Like the only problem that my friends have is that it's too cheap. So I went to another group of friends. These are all dudes from private schools. And I was like, hey, you know, I have these shoes for $80. Do you want to get them? My justification was that, oh, well, you know, if I don't get 20, like at least it covers my shipping. And actually one of my friends said to me, you know, I can get an order of 20 for you, but what do I get out of this? And I thought it was just a really interesting change of mentality because I went to an all-girls school and everyone was like, if you charge more than what it costs, you're like taking advantage of your friend. But these guys came from very privileged families or like parents of business people. So they had that mentality of like, this is a win-win where if I can make money and you can get it for less, why not? I thought that was really interesting, like the difference in mentality that I saw. And I was like, okay, I dig this. So I told them, I'll charge $80. And if you get an order of 20 by the end of next week, then you can charge whatever you want, as long as it's more than 80. If you want to charge... 250 make $170 per pair of shoes. Go ahead. And you should just see like these guys, the eyes just like light up. My minimum viable product was completely free. Just one Excel sheet, one Word document with the different colors of the shoes and one Facebook page, which as you know, I called it Cristal Stigili. I don't even know how to say it. I was like, what name should I call this? And my two best friends at the time were called Crystal Joy and Lily. So I was like crystal jelly. And 
convert it into French. <laughs> you know, naming things is not a talent of mine. Yeah, worked out though. It sounds like it scaled very, very quickly from there. So it sounds like it was word of mouth. It's crazy like how people overcomplicate how they can make money. But honestly, I was just like trying to do what made sense to me. So I was like, great, this guy wants to, I can clearly see his incentivized to promote to 20 people. And in order to collect the money first, I said, if your friend decides to order, they have to give me a $40 bond. And when the shoes come and they pay the rest, you can give me the remaining 40 when we swap the shoes, just in case you order a size 43 silver pair of shoes that I can't sell to anybody else. And also, main problem is I don't have the money to pay for upfront anyway. (laughs) So that's the main problem. But, you know, you just got to pitch it the other way. And then I went to nine other friends, said the same thing. All dudes from private schools. Guess that was my market. By the end of that week, these 10 people gave me 20 orders each. And so that's 200 pairs of shoes in which each I made a $40 profit. And that was $8,000 profit to like 16 k revenue roughly in that week. And so what was really interesting was that at least five of the 20 people who had bought the shoes would come back to me and say, hey, I know my friend sold me these shoes. Can I also sell it to like my friends? Because I also want to make money. (laughs) So literally was network marketing (laughs) to the T, except unfortunately, I couldn't think of a recurring subscription model or something. Too bad shoes are just one off. But I think network marketing it works because people trust people that you know. And if you can create an incentivization model that works in the favor of the people helping you promote it, then you can actually grow this really fast. When I look back, the first one is that people keep asking me, like, why did you only take $40? You could have easily taken a much bigger cut. I don't have those networks. So in order to really incentivize my 10 only contacts, I would rather go broad. It would motivate them much more than if I had taken like a 50-50 cut or a majority cut like most people would have done. And I think that like me having the problem of no money really sought out like I need you to pay me. That's like showing traction, right? Like you need to pay me in order for me to even order these shoes. Like I'm not going to do shit if you don't give me that money first. This is the only model that I knew because I had no money, but it was surprising to me, like a lot of people raise a lot of money or use a lot of their savings to build something that they don't know if it's something that people would pay for. So I feel like I I learned those couple of things. And like business to me was really powerful, the way that it can impact the people around you, because all of my friends made a lot of money and then were able to like pay off all the university school fees or like I bought an investment property when I was 18. So it was like crazy to me. Like, imagine if I had taken that McDonald's job. From there, you made 8000 the first week and you finished it having made half a million. So even though it was just $40, it used to... <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's not like what volume can do, right? And also the power of network, the people around you to do that network for you. I see a lot of similarities now with NFTs as well to make that kind of impact through the power of people spreading rather than a lot of money or advertising dollars to reach eyeballs. What's better than like a raving fan? Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans. You just need us or even a hundred. Exactly. So why did you go from shoes to accounting? What happened? I don't know what was going through my head. So at that point, I was 18, bought a property, paid my tax, 
basically had a lot of things illiquid. Basically felt like I never made this money. <laughs> I never went nuts. The other thing was that being with my non-Asian parents, they had always told me when you're 18, you've got to pay for everything yourself. Like you got to move out, you got to pay for school fees, you pay for everything, your mobile, healthcare, literally anything that is related to you. Like they'd be telling me this since I was 12. So unfortunately told my brother when he was 18, my brother was like, what? What do you mean you're not going to pay for my school fees? <laughs> so he um, really hated my parents for a while until he became independent. Yeah, you know, he's grateful now. Lucky for me, they were like, okay, we need to do something different with our next kid. And instead of being like, we're going to still continue supporting our next kid, they were like, we need to start telling her when she's 12. So she's mentally prepared that when she's 18, she has to move out. And so that has always been in the back of my mind. What am I going to do during university once I move out? And because I bought my property in Melbourne and not in Sydney, and I had gotten into UNSW, I still needed to friends somewhere. During that time, I was just looking at, okay, you know what? I'm interested in business now. What can help me enhance my knowledge around business? Because I just started this thing and I wasn't that interested in shoes. I didn't really want to continue after high school. I honestly just wanted that one pair. (laughs) There was this girl who came to our school who worked at KPMG who went through a cadetship program. Basically, it was a four-year contract where they would pay for your school fees, your books, everything. They would give you a salary. You work for them full-time the first year, part-time the next year, full-time, part-time on a rotating basis. And when you graduate, you become a senior accountant. I wasn't interested in accounting before, but I thought, oh, wow, like you get to work for a fancy looking company in the city and in a big building. And I get to wear like office clothes and feel like an adult. When you're 18, you want to feel these things. And also that means I can move out. It solves all my problems. And I get to kind of have a step ahead when I go to university. I can already have some work experience and then figure out what the hell I want to do. My plan was going to get my CPA. I have no idea what I'm thinking. I want to get my CPA. Then maybe I'll start another business because now I fully understand everything businessy. Looking back, I honestly had no idea what I was applying for. Literally, they'll be like, why do you want to join Enterprise Advisory? I'll be like, oh, it sounds like I'll be consulting people. And what I end up doing is actually a ton of tax returns and financial statements. Nothing to do with advisory. And it was really funny because the company that I joined was BDO. And at the time, I had applied for PKF. So I went into the interview. They were like, why do you want to join this firm? And I was like, I really want to join PKF because X, Y, Z. And they're like, you know, we got bought by BDO today. I was like, I want to join BDO. (laughs) ABC. (laughs) I got the job anyway. (laughs) It was just um, really funny knowing that they had bought out PKF, which actually ended up getting bought out by Grant Thornton. So there's this whole line of being bought out. They were also going through a lot of culture change as well. And so I joined this period and I think I just got like a huge shock of what the working world was like. And honestly, I hated every part of it. I think it suits some people, but something that I hate is being micromanaged, the quintessential nine to five, meaning if I was 901 to my desk, my senior would tell me, you need to be here by 8.59 so you can log in to start at nine. So I just was never going to thrive. Not only that, but the nature of the work itself is extremely repetitive. So I absolutely hated it. I don't know how I lasted a year, but I lasted a year and then quit 
right before the summer break. My parents were back in China again. I don't know why I do this to myself, but I always say, oh my gosh, my parents are going to kill me if they find out that I'm going to quit this thing. My parents have never cared. I don't know why. Like, I think that they will care that I quit this thing. I did the same thing when I was younger where people would invite me to a house party and I know there's going to be alcohol. I know there's going to be drugs. And I would automatically be like, no, my parents would not let me. And then I'll ask my parents. They would just be like, yeah, why not? Go. So naturally, I was like, my parents are going to kill me if they know that I quit. I need to figure out what I'm going to do before they come back. Julia Gillard, our prime minister, had just launched this white paper that was like Australian in the Asian century. I'll find myself an internship in China because I'm Chinese, right? Makes sense. So I applied for ISEC, which if you don't know what it is, like a global nonprofit organization that has chapters in basically most universities around the world. It's been around for like 100 years and they do two kind of branches. One is like internships and one is volunteering around the world. You know, it's a huge organization. A lot of students go through it. I was like, yeah, I'll just apply for this. So I went to the interview and I was like, you have placements in China, right? They're like, yeah, we do. But do you want to teach English in Hungary? I was like, no. Two weeks later, I got an email that was like, you have been rejected from this process. And I was like, how the hell do you get rejected from a nonprofit organization? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go find my own internship then. And then I thought for a bit and I was like, I don't really want to find my own internship. I don't want to actually go by myself. So I asked all of my friends, hey, do you want to come to China with me? I'll organize all your internships for you. Chinese language learning, cultural activities, just pay me $2,000. Like 20 of my friends said yes, but I was like, crap. Now that they all said yes, how am I going to find these internships? Someone's studying like aeronautics, engineering, civil engineering, all these random engineering things that I've literally never heard of. And there's a law degree person. <laughs> I was like, what city do I even start with? It's not like my parents have any connections. Just getting one internship for one person in one industry, you already need like countless numbers of connections to reach out to before you even get that one. So imagine doing that for 20 people. I was like, what the hell did I do to myself? <laughs> Why do I do this? So I always go back to this question. I like, how can you get the most amount of impact with the lowest amount of effort? What's publicly available is university emails and universities hold the relationships of all the companies in one city. So if I can reach out to the right person in a university, they can help me look for internships because they already have the relationships. So I look for a specific person. This is the Dean of International Education. I know that their KPI is to get more international students. Great. I'm an international student. They want me. I need them. Win-win. Scrape like 400 different emails of Dean of International Education or, or whatever similar title. And to 400 universities. Yeah, I mean, it was just wow. like copy-paste. And I say, hey, we are 20 Australian students. We absolutely love your university. We would love to visit for the holidays. And here's all their profiles. <laughs> Can we pay you a lump sum? I just gave them the whole $2,000. Can we pay you a lump sum and you organize this for us, including accommodation and language learning at your university, some cultural tours and an internship? That's all I ask. <laughs> Most people didn't reply me. 
except it would be like four people. Luckily, one was interested. It was the Dean of International Education for Liaoning University in a city called Shenyang. And at the time, I was like, where is this place? And then I Google it. It's an hour away from North Korea. And I actually went to the border. I was like, okay, hey, friends, like, want to go to Shenyang? Shenyang is the capital city of Northeast China. It used to be the capital city before Beijing. So it has an imperial palace. It's of great historical importance. You know, we can go skiing. We can go to Harbin nearby and see the ice lights. And you don't want to go to a first tier city. You don't want to go to a second tier city because then you can actually practice your Chinese, your shitty Chinese and become fluent in two months. If you go to a first tier city, they're just going to speak English to you. You want to become, you know, make your parents proud, become fluent. A lot of Australia's business is with Chinese clients. And when you apply for jobs, they're going to see like, wow, this person actually knows how to work with Chinese people. So we're going to put them in front of our clients. And that's an advantage when you job hunt. So I pitched it like that. I think my friends just want a good time. They're like, yeah, sure. Cool. Let's go. <laughs> so you end up going there and I heard that there was a bit of drama as well, right? Because the accommodation they gave you wasn't great. And then you had a friend who tried to call the police on you after all that. Yeah. I saw this thing with this girl. There was a lot of drama because her mom initially promised to organize all of these things and it didn't work out. And so I was like, okay, you can find accommodation for us. I'm managing all of the, the students and getting them on board. We would get to the accommodation and it's just rooms, five people are sleeping in a room with beds squished together. We had promised hotels. This is not a good situation, especially in the apartment that we stayed at. We had this toilet door entire frame fell up so we were using like a curtain to cover the toilet door if someone's like showering you can just like see a bright clear day the group was 20 friends 10 of them came in one month and then the other 10 came in the second month the day before i arrived to china or the day after i arrived in china i came earlier and i noticed the majority of the money had been funneled out into another bank. So, I mean, it's something that I don't really like to talk about because she was my friend and I thought I trusted her. And I think that that's why I had to be resourceful because when you're facing this kind of emergency blocker, you need to find all ways to resolve it. Because when we were switching to hotels and the accommodation, I had to pay it all out of pocket. I paid for everyone's accommodation, all of the activities that we did with the universities. And I also refunded a whole bunch of money back to my friends as well. And so it was like a whole year of salary <laughs> gone. But it was a really great learning lesson as well. Anyway, long story short, it was like after I came back to Australia, I was like, hey, what did you do with the money? Because I basically wrote her this email that was like, hey, what did you do with this money? You have two options. One is to give me all the receipts. We can analyze what you spent. And then the other thing is put all the money back and we can look at your expenses and reimburse you, get an auditor or something. Her mom wrote to me and said, hey, return this $5,000 immediately or I'll take legal action against you. And I was like, what? You took that amount of money and you're going to call legal action against me for 5000 I clearly wrote in this email that I'm only taking this as like a leverage so that you can tell me exactly what you spent. 
Anyway, so the next day, a police knocked on our door and I told him what happened. He was like, you need to actually like get a lawyer. It's a civil thing and not really to do with the police. They were just doing it to blackmail, but it just made me really sad. I didn't even blame my ex-friend, but to have like a 50-year-old full adult take advantage of someone who's 18 at this point, it was incomprehensible to me. There's such a small amount of money. We can clearly make this so much bigger. But if you want to take it now, like I just couldn't believe that they would want to cut it off now without trying to make it bigger when the return would be so much more. So I was like, okay, I mean, your loss. Were you not jaded? Were you not thinking, oh, even though you didn't start up intending to be a business, in a way it was, were you not jaded? I wasn't jaded as such. I was just disappointed in this particular person. I actually have a tendency to trust people too much to a fault. The only thing I've done better is that if I go into business with someone, I make sure that I write a contract. How do you end up starting Austin International then? I started Austin International because I was doing this with this friend. And so she basically thought, I can do this by myself. I just needed you to like bring the students. I don't need you anymore. So she wanted to take the name. I was like, fine, we'll just make something else. Basically, the timeline of this trip was that halfway through, she went back to Australia. And that's when she started telling everybody in the first trip, we're not going to do this anymore with Lily. So I was still in Shenyang with the whole group of students as well. And so I just was like, okay, like, why do you want to do this? I'm still in China. You're going around telling everybody you already don't want to do this anymore. I went to the dean and was like, okay, you know, she said to me, I would love more of your students to come back to China. What's your business name? On the spot, I just said, Austin, Australia interns squashed together. Just like how I was like crystal jelly. It makes perfect sense as well. <laughs> Austin means oyster in German. So the world is your oyster. Like the more oysters that you open, the more opportunities that you take, the more likely you'll be able to find your pearl. Perfect <laughs> And I mean, Austin was international. It was in seven different locations. So you could argue that as well. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. The second program, so the one without my friends, I ended up getting 40 students. How I pitched it was that this was Liaoning University's program. I'm an ambassador to bring more students to China. And Liaoning University has the top 10 business school in China. Just trying to find every merit that I can get. Because I knew that if I created my own program and said, I'm running this program, who's going to pay 2200 to an 18-year-old where she's younger than everybody else in this university? So I have to kind of leverage like what I have at that point in time, what resources I have, and pitch it to my advantage. This is my first time running a program with three of my high school friends. And that program honestly was kind of a disaster because we didn't account for the fact that the internship was so far away. We had the schedule where it's half-day internship, half-day Chinese language learning. You have to come back to university to learn the language, do Chinese classes. And people just couldn't come back in time. It wasn't even like program iteration. It was like daily iteration. We would allocate two hours every night to interview every single student. We do this daily, like three weeks. Wow. So we got instant feedback every single day and we would change the program like every day. So by the next day, the whole schedule changed. And the next day, something else changed, you know. So I learned a lot from that process. And I also refunded half the people. I just feel like I can't take people's money if it's not 100% really great. 
the main thing that people are going for is not great. The internships that the university had organized, and it doesn't matter if I organize everything else, really awesome, you know, all of these activities that people can do if the internship is not great. And it frustrated me that I couldn't control that experience because this problem was extrapolated in China where you would go into a room and people would basically like you'd go to like Bank of China or something and they would sit you in this room and you would do nothing. I was like, do you have photocopying you want them to? (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness. I had this one company, totally random as a factory and he was like factory owner and he was really young though, spoke fluent English, the only one that spoke fluent English. And he owned a company called Best Composite. And I was like, what the crap is a Best Composite? And he was like, composite material doing microfiber stuff where you can build like bumper cars, like 3D print bumper cars or like airplane stuff. And so he was working with a lot of like the military, but also Ferrari and like all these brands to create different parts. And he gave these two awesome challenges. Like one was an HR one and one was like build, design this whole showroom for like Ferrari. And they could 3D print all this stuff and everyone was having so much fun. By the end, everyone who was working at a bank was like, oh my God, can I switch to this? This that looks so much fun. And I got my first inkling like, oh, actually, maybe it's not the brand that is important. It's the experience, right? Because initially, my impression was if you get an internship, it's about the brand. And then once you can get the brand, like you get to get a job easier. I had to question a lot of assumptions through this process. And I was like, okay, maybe it's the experience. Like, But how can I control this experience? And so I saw what he did was like, you know, give them a challenge, right? And then you have this set period of time in order to complete it and then you have to present it to him so eventually we changed it once I got on my co-founder Jamie we changed it so that it was every single company so they could do less work and we could make it more consistent we would ask them hey give us a challenge that you're facing and then we would run a whole week design sprint where they would go through the whole ideation they go out interview people we would teach them like how you can easily create a prototype and then test. Sometimes the company would give some budget to test and then pitch it back to the executives of that company. Once my co-founder joined in 2016, I was like, first thing I was like, we're not doing China. Let's get out of here. <laughs> so we went to Singapore and Hong Kong first. We worked with Carousel in 2016 when they were still at Block 71. At the time, they wanted to expand overseas. And so the challenge for us was come up with a expansion strategy. The winning team actually got to roll out that solution and was hired by Carousel to expand into Australia. Didn't that also happen with Uber as well because they wanted to launch Uber Eats? Yeah, so that happened with Uber as well, where they wanted to launch Uber Eats and the winning team would have it launched nationwide. It was a really great way for people to build a portfolio in a very short period of time and to gain that experience. And then to also feel like, hey, what kind of environment do I like? Do I like a corporate environment or do I like a startup environment? So we would usually partner with one corporate and then one startup. That would mean that in the three-week period, they have two companies that they have worked for they can leverage that for their next experience. Or if they did really well, the company would use this as a hiring process. I noticed that you were running these physical boot camps simultaneously in seven different places. Yeah. Looking back, do you regret expanding so quickly? I don't regret expanding, but it was quite stressful because if you can imagine like the demographic of people are like 18 to 21 year olds. 
I facilitated so many of these programs and I would select the best of the best people who are on these programs and say, hey, I can give you this honor of becoming a facilitator. The next program we will pay for you to go to these locations, but we'll also train you to become a leader. So that was really, really fun, creating the whole program for facilitators, for alumni to increase their leadership skills as well. But overall, it was very stressful because you have a bunch of very young adults living together for three weeks and you control like the experience of the program nine to five. After that, they go out. Literally, I would watch someone jump off a statue drunk and I was like, oh my God, stop. Like, <laughs> I was like, surprised no one ever went to hospital. I made everybody sign a death waiver before they went overseas. I was just so scared something would happen. No matter what, you'd still feel responsible, even though they're adults. It happened under your watch, right? So that is the problem with physical boot camps, but it was also extremely fulfilling. And I think a lot of my really close friends now all came from Austin. You grew into a seven-figure business. So what was the way in which everyone was getting to know about Austin? How were you growing it, essentially? We were extremely frugal with marketing. Basically, we had no budget for marketing. I didn't want to spend it on things where I couldn't really like test a return. And I didn't know how much money I would have to spend with digital marketing and Facebook ads and stuff like that to properly see a return. So I did a lot of growth hacks. I started off with sticking stuff in the back of a toilet and having those pull-out tags. I was like, I need to think of a better way to get this to more people instead of going around sticking on the back of the university toilets every single day because it gets pulled down by the cleaner at the end of the day. I realized that my own university had a university email that you could join through Facebook that specifically required a university URL and then it gave you a code in your email in order to enter. And so you would have these university groups that were private and you needed to be a verified university student in order to enter. So I went around and asked every single person that I knew who went to a different university, who went on exchange and who got a university email. So I was getting emails from every single uni in Australia to the entire US, West Coast, literally every UC school. And also Canadian schools. People always thought I was a student there because that's how I could enter the group. And so I would post, hey, these are in the jobs and internships groups. That's it. And each of those groups had 10,000 people to a couple hundred thousand people in the first year. And I would post every couple of months, the next program. And we got like thousands of applications that way. And that's how we got international students to join. A lot of people from the US and Canada and UK joined because of that, all through like me posting on these groups. And a lot, so actually some people would come up to me from UCID, like other universities that I did not go to and be like, oh, you're that girl who is from our school, right? <laughs> and you're like, post on round. Yeah, I was like, I actually don't go to your university. <laughs> so that was like one of those things. And then I started working with different societies. When I'm working with a society, I wanted them to blast to the entire email database about Austin. And a lot of the times they would say, hey, this is our sponsorship package. And I was like, I'm not interested in sponsoring or giving you $10,000 to do this. So I set up a Facebook group called Presidents and Executives of Sydney and Melbourne. And basically, I was an 
director of something in the entrepreneurship society at UNSW. So my excuse was, I'm going to create this space for all the presidents and executives of societies as in like an exclusive Facebook group so that we could, you know, learn from each other and like introduce to each other. And like maybe we can collaborate between the societies and also maybe do some inter-city or like inter-university events, that kind of thing, right? So I asked all the other presidents to invite other presidents and in total had around like 200 presidents. Then I went to Sydney startup group and I posted, hey, I have 200 students. I want to host this event. I have 200 presidents of these societies that can give you access to 200,000 students. And also these 200 presidents, cream of the crop of students, right? Because if you're a president, you're probably a really popular and a really good student. And so who wants to sponsor a space and give a talk? So we ended up getting a space at Freelancer, like the office, and then we got some speakers, et cetera. And so in that one go, a company could talk to the students and potentially like have a hiring process for grads. And for me, I can just meet all of these 200 presidents in one go and use it as a way to show, like I'm the host. You all know who I am now. So when I go and reach out to you later, I'd be like, hey, can you email to your entire database? You know, I already know you. We'll do this as a collab kind of thing rather than my 10K sponsorship package. And so it really reduced the amount of time because I don't have time to reach out to 200 different people separately. This is like all at once. Thank you very much. That's incredible. It sounds like you have an amazing thing going. So why was it that you decided to quit Austin after four years? My business partner actually moved to Singapore and joined Carousel. And I just felt very stagnant in my own growth. And also I graduated after five years, finally, because I used to enroll in all four subjects and then unenroll in all four by the time it was like third week because I couldn't make the compulsory attendance. In this time where there was COVID, I probably would have graduated faster since there was remote studying. But because Back then, you have to have 80% attendance in all your lectures and I'll be in another country. Like, there's no way I'm coming. I had to unenroll. And so I unintentionally took many gap semesters <laughs> and graduated. Everyone was like, wow, you graduated. Like, finally, <laughs> thought you would never do it. Also, when I graduate, I thought like, do I really want to keep doing this for university students? And I just felt like, it was like on repetition over and over again. Even though I was making good money, I just felt like I needed to learn from other people as well. I'm too young to like already be staying in the same thing and doing the same thing over and over again. No. How do you end up finding about new campus? I mean, the role that you had was head of learning programs. It sounds quite similar to what you were already doing at Austin as well. It was a little bit different, but at the time I had met Will and Faye, who are the co-founders, for what was called QLC. So that was actually even more similar to Austin. It was like Austin, but digital. And so I just thought, you know what? That's great. We talked about Aquahire kind of thing. It didn't work out. We end up only selling parts of the IP to other people. Anyway, we ended up shutting down Austin itself. And then I joined what was called QLC, which stood for Quarter Life Crisis. It was a different stage from what Austin was doing, but more for like mid 25 to 30 year old career where people were starting to have a core life crisis, right? And think, maybe I need to switch my career. What QLC would do was that it would match you up with a startup globally where you could do a project with that startup 
and build a portfolio so that you can showcase that and change your career, which I thought was great too. But they decided to change the business model, the company name, branding, everything. Four months when I was in and I was about to go on this massive one-year trip where I was going to work remotely because I haven't had so much freedom in a long time. I was going to work remotely, learn four languages in that one year. And I had been very upfront about that. Korean, Japanese, French, Spanish. I don't know if you know, but I had watched this TED Talk a long time ago. I was obsessed with this TED Talk by Scott Young and his friend, where they had basically spent one year abroad not speaking any English to each other and see if they could become fluent in four languages. I think they did Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, and Korean. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I need to do this. And so this was my chance to do this. So work for a startup remotely, but then also just travel and learn languages. So 2019, I was about to go to Korea. My boss calls me, was like, do you want to move to Singapore? Because we're going to relaunch this entire business from scratch called New Campus. And I was like, I'm just about to go to Korea. <laughs> so I was thinking like, do I either quit? He was like, you can come just six months. You'd be this Singapore country manager, help us operationalize, roll this out. And then you can go be a country launcher in another country. So you can learn your language then, right? I was like, fine, I'll come for six months. But first I'm going to do one month in Korea because I booked everything already. So I'm just going to go and I'll come the next month. That's what I did. I went to Korea, studied at SNU and then lived by myself in Korea for a month, had so much fun. And then I came to Singapore. They put me in a hostel, right? So the first day I was at this hostel, I met my boyfriend. So really serendipitous because if I had quit, like I would never would have met him. And if I had gone the month when I was supposed to, I also would have missed him altogether. So it was a good thing. Came to Singapore and met my boyfriend and he used to work in the States. He got burnt out after working in Silicon Valley for seven years. And so he was on a travel sabbatical. And when I talked to him, he was like, I'm going to do six months. Asia, three months Europe, three months South America. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Why are you copying me? <laughs> we kept talking, we started dating. Whilst I was in Singapore for six months, helped start the new campus brand. I was doing a lot of more like BD, branding, PR, and operation. I mean, it's a startup with like five people. So you kind of do everything. And then when I told my boss, hey, I'm actually thinking about traveling again after the six months. That's when I transitioned into a programming role. So actually someone else was doing programming before, but that girl had quit. So now they were like, we don't have instructors for next week. So I had to go and create all of the instructors. Then slowly I went into learning design. This was definitely like different to Austin in that this was more like designing like a learning pathway from individual contributors to first time managers. So it's very different topics. I was getting really into this idea around interdisciplinary learning. I was really fascinated of this idea around how can you take mental models and frameworks from one discipline and apply it to a completely different area whilst talking about this learning pathway of becoming a manager. So you have like these pillars of like communication and relationship building and whatnot. I would invite instructors who were say designers Designers are really good at asking great questions. They're really good at questioning assumptions. They're very good at finding out what the problem is. And so why don't we learn 
from these people who do this as a job, who learn all of these frameworks and apply it to like how you can question your own assumptions when you're managing people. And product managers are great at prioritization and decision making. So we can also apply these mental models on how you can present. So that's kind of like what I was doing with New Campus. So you end up going on this trip and you were in South America as well. And so how do you end up landing your role at Stripe? So I was in Europe and South America for eight months, came back to Singapore, and I was still working for New Campus for a whole year during lockdown. During that time, I was also like kind of looking what else there is and helped with New Campus. They raised Series A. And so Ashley initially had gotten a job at Apple and the role at Apple was a head of programs role where it was teaching people how to be more creative. And it was a mix of my creative background and mixing it with education and very much related to this in a disciplinary kind of factor of applying a lot of different things and making people think in a more creative way using Apple products. Anyway, the job didn't work out because my visa couldn't get approved. And because during the time it was at the height of lockdown and the government is very strict about visas. Naturally, they want to give specific roles to local citizens, which is fair. But I waited for three months for it to get rejected. So I was like, is this going to happen or not? I then became four months like fun employed. And during that time, I was just exploring art. I was doing a lot of commissions. I was trying to do an experiential dining kind of thing with like projection mapping and stuff. And then I was also trying to publish a coloring book. I was honestly just really bored and trying to look for another job so I could stay in Singapore. I was really close to giving up and maybe I was like, oh, I'll just start my own thing again. But I have no idea what to start. I was really fortunate that one of my mentors in Australia who works for a VC actually introduced me to this role. And I was like, wow, this is a perfect role. I don't think I've ever come across a role in a big company that fit me so perfectly because I, I had a lot of issues with finding jobs just because when it becomes a lot bigger, it becomes so much more specialized. And I was like, what skill do I specialize in? It felt like I was cutting a part of myself and only applying that very small section of me. So this was finally a role where it was like a blank slate. It basically only had one person in this team for APAC. So they're growing the team and I would be working for startups like my specialty. And I wouldn't have to like kind of take a step back in order to fit myself in a little box. But I could actually leverage all of the strengths and experiences that I have to its like full advantage and meets all of my values. So I feel super fortunate that I found this role. Super lucky. And I wanted to shift our conversation because one of the things that you did last year was to launch Wild Pixies NFT. And that's really, really huge. I think a lot of people, even though we've heard about it a lot in the media, most people still don't know what an NFT is. So how would you define an NFT? Yeah, I actually launched Wild Pixies this year, not last year, but I got into NFTs last year, mostly because I was never super interested in the crypto space until I saw NFTs. And I was like, whoa, pretty pictures. I think it was just something that I could really relate to. And I think it is kind of confusing for people to see like, why is this picture of a, you know, monkey worth a million dollars? Like, how does this make any sense? And I think you need to understand fundamentally what it could be and what this technology is first. I think very simply, right? It's just a token on a blockchain, which is a unique one. 
So it differentiates from everything else. It's different from every other token. The way I see is kind of like when a business wants to create a web page, a web page itself is just a tool. It's like empty. You can design it however you want and it will be whatever you want it to be. And I think this is kind of very similar. It's just kind of like a web page, but with ownership attached to it. And so I think fundamentally what NFTs represents is something that is a change in a business model. Because of the fact that when you create a series of NFTs, it requires a smart contract. Now you can track the NFT as it goes from person to person. And so with the use of a smart contract, you can allocate in advance how much money you can get when it gets transferred to the next person, to the next person. And a proportion of that royalty will go back to you. So this is a huge business potential for a lot of people because if you imagine brands, even like, let's say like a luxury brand like Hermes, which hates the secondary market because basically they have cultivated this cult, right? You can't even go into a store and buy a Birkin. You need to be on a waiting list. Then you need to buy a bunch of all this other stuff before you even get remotely considered to buy what you want. And maybe you don't even get what you want, but you buy it anyway because that's all you can get. Like they have created such a smart model. The issue is at the moment they sell it. That's it. You can't track where this bag goes. But now with an NFT, you can see exactly how something gets transferred to this person, to this person, to this person. To this. So if you can imagine... If Hermes launched an NFT as a token of authentication alongside a physical bag, maybe it has like something in it, like a token in it where you can scan it and it, you can showcase that this is the real bag. Now they have a way of tracking where this bag goes and also deteriorating the fact that it's forged, right? You can easily forge a piece of paper to say that it's real. People do that so well with like Chanel bags and stuff like that Chanel authenticated card and unless you take it into a physical store and like analyze you probably can't even tell the difference so this is a way where not only do they potentially can solve that problem but also they can capture hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue that they could not capture before because every time if i in my smart contract say 80 percent or 90 percent of this sale to you initially goes to me right that's normal 10 percent maybe goes to suppliers but in the smart contract, every time this person sells it to another person, I take 10% of this transaction because you need to transfer the NFT to them in order for you to prove that's real. So every single transaction, you take 10%, you're going to get $100 billion just from that that you could not realize before. And this applies to a lot of different things. And it's kind of just started off with the art scene because, you know, my parents are artists. I never thought it was a viable option. I always thought it was poor, starving artists. So this is a way where you can quickly fundraise, crowdsource through a vision, through your art, and people can rally around and build a community around it. And you can have control over that narrative. Like, why would that not be an appealing thing? And especially it became viral through memes and things like that that have a social standing or status. That's only the starting point. But really, NFTs can be anything that requires a unique token. So I think there's so much potential from supply chain to identity and, and stuff like that. We've established what NFT is, but Wildpix is actually a venture DAO. So what's a DAO? A DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. How I kind of see it is that a traditional organization is centralized where everybody at the top makes that decision for everybody. 
like you have businesses that make decisions on what your product is going to be, where this decision is going to go. You're the CEO, CEO, whatever. They make a majority of the large decisions. Everyone else is a consumer. I think the concept of a DAO is that you are giving away your power to everybody. So it becomes like a decentralized a way of making decisions as an organization, kind of like a co-op. And I think this is the first one that invests into women projects as a way to use NFTs to fundraise the amount of money so that a DAO could then make decisions on which projects to invest. And so it's one of the first few that have done that because traditionally DAOs are DAOs, NFTs are NFTs, where DAOs would issue like coin tokens. And so in this way, an NFT is a token. So we issue the, but then you're purchasing to get this token first, which means that we get that initial capital to actually crowdsource it. I don't need to issue it for free and then try to have the supply and demand kind of thing going. Sounds like a decentralized VC, essentially. Yeah, kind of like a decentralized VC, but there's also issues with calling it a VC because anyone can purchase into it and it's not kind of like vetted syndicate. It can easily become a security because you cannot promise, like say if I sell something from our vault, like we cannot promise everybody gets a portion of income. So we have to think more creatively on how we can reward our holders in various different ways. So it's the first out to invest just in women-led projects. Yeah. What was the reason behind that? Yeah, I think it comes from when I was first buying the, in the NFT space, my friend went and told me, you should buy this cool cat. And I was like, what is this cat? But I'll buy one for 1.5 ETH. And I actually had at the time made a LinkedIn post. Go like, I just bought this cool cat for 1.5 ETH. And I took it down because I was like, actually, that's kind of stupid. People are going to think I'm dumb for buying this thing for $4,000. But I made my boyfriend buy it and I made like three, four friends buy it. Thank God it went well, did well though. It went up to like 10, 11 ETH. My second one was Robotos and my third one was Water Woman. Lucky for me, those three things also all worked out. And my friend at the time, I said, oh, I saw this thing called Water Woman. Like, should I get it? Because she's like very experienced in the space. And she came from a DeFi space. And she was like, I don't recommend you getting that because I legitimately don't think it's going to do well. And I was like, why don't you think it's going to do well? And she said, well, because 90% of the space are men and they're going to want to buy things that they relate to. And I was like, hmm, that's fair, but I'm going to buy three. <laughs> so I don't know. I really like it. I'm just going to buy it. It was quite cheap at the time. So I didn't really care that if it wasn't going to do well, it's not going to do well. But the next day it actually went up to two ETH or 2.5 ETH. And I actually accidentally sold both of them because I had oh. listed it at two and 2.5. And I thought it would take me like two years to sell because I was like, oh, I just bought it at 0 0.4, you know. And then the next day I wake up and it's sold. I was like, what the hell happened? <laughs> and I went and bought another one. But I think like Gary B and like Logan Paul at the time had like bought a whole bunch the next day, like after I had bought it. And I was like, what? This space nuts. <laughs> but then I was like, wow, you know, with my newfound purchase, you know, I, I just sold my first thing. I was like right in the rabbit hole. And then I heard about Boss Beauties. And I thought at the time, there's no way that this project cannot do well. Because if you looked at Boss Beauty's launch, before they even launched, the founder, Lisa, she has a business called My Social Canvas and had been running it for 10 years. So I was like, wow, she's been doing this for 10 years. Like, she's going to stick around. They had already promised six of the Boss Beauty's was going to be hung 
on the New York Stock Exchange art hall before they even minted. I think no other project has ever had such an impressive achievement before even mint. I was like, wow, with this level of execution, the fact that they can get it in the art hall before it even starts, that means she's so connected and she's like really good at execution. And I was like, there's no way that this won't do well. And this is when I went nuts and I made like 30 people buy it including our head of sales at Stripe. <laughs> really good at convincing people to join your vision. <laughs> Oops. And then he was like, oh, I bought one for my wife. And then I would just post it on Instagram. So that was a lot of people's first purchase. But for the longest time, I would say like three or four months, the price of Boss Beauties didn't go anywhere. And I was just, just hold it. Like, do not sell it. <laughs> it's fine. Like I had so much conviction in and recently in January, suddenly it just spiked. And now Boss Beauty is now at two or three ETH. So now people are like, okay, fine. <laughs> I was like, good thing you didn't sell. I realized what the power I had was in the VC space with my day job as a startup partner lead. I work with VCs every single day. You see firsthand how little money goes into women's hands. The statistic is like really abysmal, which is only 2.3% of women are funded in VC. That's not even close to parity. It's a long, long way. And then if you're talking about women of color, that's even more depressing. But actually, when you do invest in women, they generate 100% more return. And that's like a BCG research done. You know, it's a smart thing to invest in women. And I truly believe that, especially in the, the NFT space where the money is not gatekeeped by VC, by a certain demographic. I have the power to invest in what I believe in, what I value, and I want to put more money in women's hands. Then why don't I purchase more things that are led by women? Like, why would I buy this random monkey toad or whatever it is? Sure, maybe they might be a good purchase, but if I can't even bring myself to do that, to make money, just because I'm like, you're just making these dumb people richer. I refuse to do that when they're way more hardworking people in the space who would up building longevity who will need this money. I had a lot of conviction in a lot of women-led projects. I was like, why aren't more people paying attention? Me and my co-founders, and they're both men, by the way. One's Native American, but he's like very into diversity. One's another, another dude, but they were both minters of World of Women. And they were like, I don't understand why people aren't taking World of Women seriously. It is like the historical women project and also they're innovating at a completely different level. Now they have all these sandbox partnerships, $25 million sandbox already invested in World of Women and the price went down. You know, I'm just like WTF, you know, but it's just so undervalued. Even now at 60, crazy low price compared to whatever 80 ETH that Board Apes New York Club is. The space is so male dominated. As it becomes more mainstream, though, you have Reese Witherspoon, you have all these women celebrities who are promoting NFTs. And as more women come into the space and get educated, then they're going to want to find things that they can relate to as well. That's when we're going to see a mass adoption of women projects and you're going to see these prices go nuts. That's why we started Wow Pixies is more to amplify and invest in putting more money into women's hands and having a way for when people do onboard into the space, having a way to get a variety of exposure to all of the women-led projects and making an informed decision later on if they want to actually invest in it themselves. So how does it actually work? I mean, you're a holder. Mm -hmm. How do you decide on what to invest in and what not to invest in? 
how it works is that when you buy a pixie, what it does is it's kind of like a governance token. It gives you a voting right. On Discord, we have a proposal channel where everybody can put their proposals in. We have kind of a research form and a research done on each of the projects that people propose. And then we have a curator club, which is a pixie with the rainbow purple hair. That is a specific only 10 pixies out of the entire 5,555 collection. And basically, they help narrow it down what everyone has generally nominated. And then finally, with the final proposal, we put up a snapshot vote, which is a tool that can identify, it connects to your wallet and sees how many pixies you hold in your wallet. And that will determine the number of votes that you get. It will kind of determine the final direction. That's the power of decentralization because even if I wanted A, but the options are A, B, C, and the majority is B, we have to go with B. So I don't hold that power to say this is the final decision that we make. It's up to everybody. With the mint money, 80% goes into the DAO wallet and 75% of the secondary transactions goes into the DAO wallet. The DAO wallet is a multi-signatory wallet that is controlled by four to six people. So aside from the founders, we also did a nomination of community members and everybody had to vote their top three choices. And those three people became multi-signatory signers. And so in order to make any transaction, you need at least four of the six signatures. So we can't just be like, hey, we want to make a decision. Let's just take money out. That's not possible unless you have at least one or two more people who agree. And it's an extra kind of security and protection for the wallet funds as well. I noticed on OpenSea you have around 2,000 holders. So that's quite a lot of voices. Is everyone very active on Discord, actively participating in this? Because I was also looking at Snapshot and you have some which are quite time sensitive, like selling the crypto chicks and you really needed to decide very fast. What's yeah. the response like? If it is like a normal proposal, it'll be 24 hours. So it gives everybody a chance to vote. If it's an emergency vote, it'll be a two-hour vote. And everybody would go nuts in the proposal channel like to debate which one they should do. And so in regards to the Crypto Chicks one, actually, the consensus, even though in the beginning, everyone was like kind of panicking and saying we should just sell. But in the end, actually, the consensus was to hold until there was more information. So I thought that was a really great outcome because if it was just me deciding, I'd be like, oh my God, panic, sell it. But actually everyone had really healthy debate and they were like, we shouldn't panic, sell and hold it until the team comes out and says, addresses this issue, then we can decide. So actually we ended up doing another 24-hour vote on whether or not to actually sell it. I think that's like the power of the DAO as well. It, It has the ability to like challenge everybody's assumptions are and then for people to make a more informed decision but also we are like learning and adjusting because then it's kind of like what counts as an emergency what are the criteria and so these are all the things that you kind of have to work out as you go along i want to talk about the launch as well because it sold out within five days right and the last 50 percent actually sold out within two hours yeah what were you doing prior in order to have such a successful launch to be perfectly honest, we actually did nothing. We actually set up the Twitter account a week before we launched the Mint. And we had like 20 followers in which the 20 were our co-founders, like friends. So I feel really bad that people also spend like months and months and months up to the launch, which is what I actually thought we needed to do. But we were just like, okay, whatever. We didn't have time to delay the launch just because what we wanted to do with DAO, the first thing we wanted to do was buy the royalty, what a woman, because we thought of this way before. 
when World of Women was two ETH. It was two ETH for so long. And we were like, okay, this is a great time to buy it. And then suddenly you went all the way up to 10. And we were like, stop increasing in price. <laughs> I was like, we need to launch it right now. Otherwise, a lot of other people are going to start creating these things before we do. So we were like, okay, we're, we're just going to launch next week <laughs> with 20 followers. But you can do a lot in one week. So one week we did like a giveaway. We um, started Discord. We did like a sneak peek. On the first day of Mint, we maybe had 200 people in Discord, which is kind of really small. But actually, that's all you need. We had maybe 15 people on our Discord live chat as it was launching. We were like talking through our vision. But those 15 people were like such evangelists. And I think that that's really important in the beginning. Like You just re- need really strong evangelists that really believe in you to help spread it. And then I posted on LinkedIn and I don't know what it was about that LinkedIn post because it was very basic. It was just like, hey, over the weekend, I launched this thing called Wild Pixies. Here's the link. Literally, that was it. But we got like a thousand something likes and like 130,000 views. And I got blocked by LinkedIn because they thought I used a bot. Yeah. And actually, my post got taken down because they were like, it does not meet professional guidelines. I was like, what about it doesn't meet professional guidelines? <laughs> Luckily, a lot of people saw it before it got taken down. Actually, a lot of people got onboarded and bought Wow Pixies through LinkedIn. And then the next day, something we did unintentionally in marketing is called a thunderclap. And it's where you time everything so that it all comes out all at once. And even with the small number of people, it seems like a lot. Typically, a mint, they would just do kind of like a rolling mint where it will reveal as you mint. So it would like kind of come up on Twitter, like, yeah, it's like rolling. We only sold up to like maybe a thousand. So we were like, okay, when we hit a thousand, we're going to just all reveal at once. So we held a Twitter space party of like first reveal of up to a thousand. And so on this Twitter space, we were like, okay, it's revealed now. Like everybody click refresh. And then suddenly everyone posts their wow pixies on Twitter. So that generated more people buying it until the next reveal. And then we're like, okay, at 2000, we'll do our next reveal in the two days. Did the Twitter space, everybody revealed. And then, ah, uh, hype. And then the third day, I wrote out our white paper, just like smashed it out in two hours. And I was like, okay, I got to launch this white paper. Because people kept asking me the same questions anyway. I was like, I'm going to write it out. So I can just link them this way and you can read it. And that helped actually a lot of credibility in around the project because the expectation is so low that they're like, wow, a white paper. (laughs) Yeah. So now every project needs a white paper. (laughs) Yeah, I was really impressed when I saw a link to the white paper on your LinkedIn post. And I thought, oh, you have one. I clicked through it and there's like a roadmap 2.0. And I thought, should we thought about this? (laughs) Yeah. And then I think when the ball gets rolling, it goes out super fast because in the nft space you would have someone like buy it and maybe that person is a very prominent person in the space maybe you got lucky you got an influencer and all these bots watch this wallet so when they know that this person minted like 10 wild pixies it will suddenly alert all these people like actually that's how my colleagues at stripe they heard about it is through this bot that followed this particular wallet And then when they get alerted, they start buying and then it started trending. So we actually became number one trending on OpenSea with the most volume within that two hours. It got on Twitter. It was like, WowPix is number one. Malachi is number one. And so that's how in one hour and a bit when I was having dinner and I was not watching this at all. I look on Instagram because I was trying to share my Insta story of my food with my friends. And my friend said, hey, I was going to admit another one, but it sold out. Congrats. And I was like, what? 
It was less than half, like an hour and a half ago. What do you mean? And I had to go on OpenSea and my friends actually took a video of me looking on OpenSea and I was like, it's sold out. <laughs> and I was like, you have sold out. What's next? So it's been seven weeks since we sold out. 14th of January is when we launched and we finished Roadmap 1.0 in the first like three weeks. And then we kind of worked on building Roadmap 2.0. During this time, I also immediately looked for a lawyer and we have this badass lawyer. She's this black woman who grew up in the States, but she's actually worked half her life in Singapore where she was the VP of legal compliance for Marriott International. And then she was also head of data compliance for Standard Chartered Bank. And she was also like a professor in a Chinese university. She now lives in Dubai. So this really international woman resonates with what we believe in, in diversity and women, and also understands Web3 and DAOs and NFTs. So it took me three weeks to find her. We were kind of on our roadmap 3.0. We were waiting to get her on board and then approved the roadmap. And also she was helping us with a lot of like communication stuff before we launched roadmap 2.0. Roadmap 1 was most around first setting up the DAO, the proposal methods, and also, you know, voting and buying up all these projects first and also finding different ways of liquidity. So when we first bought the World of Women, Royalty Wow, which is just 19 World of Women that have a specific trait, a coin necklace, coin earrings, and they take 2% of royalty transactions and split across 19 holders every month. So we bought it for 135 and the first month we already got January payment, 23 ETH. That's amazing. It kind of pays itself off in six months and we still have 12 months of royalties. Plus we can still resell this world of women as it increases in price. So it was a no brainer for us also because it meant that we can tie our success to world of women and not just our own secondary royalties because we didn't know like how well it was going to do, but at least we would still get consistent liquidity cash flow. Even if we didn't do that well, at least World of Women is going to still do well. So at least we have some more money every single month to go and buy up more women projects. So we bought like 10 World of Women. We bought 15 ETH of Curious Addies, which is an education NFT, like amazing founders, like Boss Beauties, Women Rise, or basically like a lot of the blue chip ones. And then that was kind of the roadmap 1.0. Roadmap 2.0 was really around, first of all, how do we engage more of the community? Well, I realized like everyone is so talented. And today we had a Forbes article released of Wild Pixies. The marketing director of Decentraland posted about it. It was only then that I realized that she's been with Wild Pixies since the beginning as well. We just have like totally crazy, like our multi-signatory wallet signer. She became the co-founder of Group Hug, which is Accelerator. She's running with Randy Zuckerberg now, now that we're a part of it, Deb soon right she she was our multi-sig wallet signer <laughs> she just started in web3 as well so there's a lot of brain power we have a crazy number of lawyers <laughs> maybe they were all attracted to the fact that we hired one so now they're like oh my gosh i'm a lawyer too let's talk about legal compliance and web3 and i just want to get more people involved in decision making and also when you get people involved they become more invested in the success of this project. And so you want more people involved. It's kind of like the shoe thing, right? Like you want to give them more so that they are incentivized to really contribute more and also like showcase their skills. A lot of people were saying, I want to transition full-time into Web3. Like I had a career of 20 years in marketing. Like how do I apply these things into Web3 and find a new career path? 
those are the two areas for contributing to the DAO. We've built out seven workstations. We have DAO governance. We have research around the proposals, like a due diligence group. We have legal think tank of all the lawyers who meet up once a week now to talk about all of these people. This is a great way for me to see, like, what are we missing? And then going to my lawyer and be like, we need to, like, fix all of these things. We have, you know, like marketing and growth, community, dev and tech. And so what we've done is that we've opened up nominations for leads of these groups. And you have all these amazing people who've come up to become lead, two or three people to become leads. And then once we've selected that, we can create these working groups where people can contribute. We also want ways to be able to funnel some of the money that we get back into people who contribute to the DAO. And that way, it doesn't become a security because these are people who are working for it rather than just as a royalty. The second aspect, so in that case, for this one, I'll talk about like how we're going to use DeFi options and also maybe proposal to fund the contributors. But also, we're using this tool called Proved, where you can mint your contribution on the blockchain. So this is a way for people to actually showcase, hey, I've worked for this project. Like I was the communications lead for um, Wow Pixies. We build our brand and get associated with all these brands. They're going to be like, oh, Lily has verified with this minted NFT that this person contributed as a marketing lead for Wow Pixies. That acts as almost like a Web3 resume that you can verify that you've done this work and now you can go and apply some Web3 jobs and prove that you were part of this. So that's one thing. The second thing was like, how can we bring more value back to the DAO? And a big issue was how can I fractionalize what's in the DAO and actually have a part in it? And at the moment, that's not really possible. No matter whether you're using coin tokens, it doesn't really match with what the items. There's no way to actually fractionalize something without it becoming a security. Even if it was a security, you still couldn't really do that. And so the problem with a lot of DAOs is that their floor price has nothing to do with what's in the DAO. That's really common. That's why we were also discussing with our lawyer. We didn't want to say anything which would overstep, overpromise, or even promise anything that was not legal and would come and bite us later. We came up with a new way, which was inspired by Gary Vee's book games. It's an experiment right now. We're going to see in a few months how it's going to actually work out. So we're going to set up a proposal for this, which we call Pixie Market. Looking at the market value of the NFT that we hold in our world, say like a world of women, and pricing it maybe at a premium of like 30%, for example. So let's say like right now, Pixies are 0.15. We say 100 Pixies, you can swap for a world of women. World of women worth 7 to 10. Pixies worth 15 E. Doesn't really make sense to swap at this point in time. But then... What if suddenly what a woman went up to 10 to 15 like it did before? Then suddenly everyone would buy up pixies to hurry up and swap with the world of women. Or if pixies suddenly decreased in price, it will stop the floor price decreasing because the moment you do that, people are going to mass buy up pixies. If it becomes like 0 0.05, they're going to mass buy 100 pixies because now the whole thing is only worth 5 ETH. They're going to easily swap for a 6 ETH, 7 ETH, 8 ETH NFT it will always even out to where it doesn't make sense anymore and the swapping would stop. So we only ever allocate like say 10% of the vault until everything is swapped out. And whilst that's happening anyway, the royalties that we get will go and buy more items in the vault. So it will keep replenishing as we keep 
swapping, but it will keep the prices stabilized, at least minimally the value of what is held in the vault. Ideally, as we bring more value and everyone wants to hold their pixies and they see a lot of value in the DAO and the supply also decreases from the swapped pixies, it will always remain above what is in the vault as well. So that's kind of a thing that we're experimenting. I guess the third thing that we're doing in our roadmap is building out Pixies as a brand because we're wow Pixies. We're a derivative of World of Women. So a lot of people don't take that seriously because obviously it's a derivative and which is fine to start with because we were inspired by them to buy up their royalty wow and we really believe in them. But also we want to build our own brand as well. So we're going to create one of the first DAO-created NFT projects by the DAO. So what that means is that we're going to internally host a competition where all of the artists within our DAO can submit their versions of their pixies. Then the DAO can vote on which artists we're going to go with. So this is a life-changing opportunity for someone in our community. We pick the artist and then we work with the artist, but the DAO also will propose these are the traits that we should do here. And we can also vote on which traits and which versions and which whatever. And it's all voted on as the process happens. So everyone knows or has a say in the end result of what this NFT project looks like, which I think is very different to how NFTs are usually created. When it does get launched, then we would launch a 10K collection. Maybe we would even have both women and men pixies, like 5,000 women, 5,000 men pixies. Every single person who holds a wild pixie will also get, that will be your access to mint a free pixie world. So we actually incorporated under Pixie World, PTLTD, because it's kind of like a play on Wild Pixie, Pixie World. Sounds kind of similar. So this one will have like wings on it and they own NFT and that can have its own utility as well. But the Wild Pixies will never decrease in value because it's still the only access point into the DAO. That's the only way you can contribute to the DAO and have a voting right is through Wild Pixies. Have you thought in terms of what your metrics of success would be? Because everything's so new right now. Honestly, no. (laughs) I think for me, intuitively, they're like, what people are saying about Wild Pixies, especially in other discords as well, and how people usually like respond to it. And I think mostly like everything that I've seen so far, everyone has been like really supportive and like, I'm surprised with the amount of execution or like how fast it's going. Generally, like that has been my metric, whether or not we're doing well or not. It's like whether or not other people saying in other discords or like what people are really talking about it has been generally like super positive. You mentioned briefly Hug by Randy Zuckerberg and Depsun. What is that? How do you get involved in it? So Hug is a accelerator program that Randy started and Debs soon they started basically running this accelerator program for women-led projects and their first cohort was with four of the biggest projects aside from water women it's boss beauties women rise women and weapons and curious addies all extremely great projects all which i have and i was talking to them since the beginning and they really wanted us to be the first DAO. they just needed to figure out how they were going to do that and invest in something different they just announced yesterday that we were going to be part of the cohort too, along with Sad Girls Bar, which I have been following for so long as well. And I love like Glam Beckett's art too. I think it gives us a lot of credibility and exposure. Also, you know, even relationships externally in the 
brand space, you know, obviously Randy has a lot of networks and relationships as with Deb and that can help support us as we also onboard more non-Web3 people into the space and exposure to like conferences or media events to help build out our brand. I think third thing is that I also want to tap into the other projects that I within Group Hug, which are so established, like getting to talk to Lisa from Boss Beauties and all of those other projects and collaborating with them on a much deeper level than you would be able to as any other project in this space. Obviously, you have invested in a lot of different types of NFTs. You clearly have a very good eye. Do you have some kind of a checklist in terms of what you're looking for when deciding what to buy and what not to Honestly, I kind of look at it kind of like early stage investing. And if you look at early stage investing, they only basically look at the team because fundamentally that's all it is, like how well that team is going to execute. The reason why I invest in Boss Beauties is because of what they stand for. The mission and vision is so clear. What a woman, you know, first women project, they have amazing art, they innovate it in the space. But Boss Beauties is like women can be anything that they want. And it's very differentiated, like career, all the traits are to do with different careers. And she's been doing this for 10 years. Like she obviously knows her mission very well, has already established so many actual brand relationships with Verizon, Target, now with Marvel, Rolling Stone, Neiman Marcus, Literally every day, she's like announcing a new partnership. And those brands are actually posted at Boss Beauties as well. Barbie, just crazy stuff. The fact that it's this cheap, like you should go and buy it. So this cheap right now, it's actually crazy. And Curious Addies, like Mai and Ben, they're engineers. Mai's husband, Ben, you know, was a Teal Fellow, worked with, Vid- like, you know, was part of the fellowship with Vitalik in Ethereum, like Dylan Field from Figma, they have a lot of really established relationships and built countless tools as well for the Web3 space before. And then they set up a partnership with NAS Academy and built out three courses in this few months, like built out three courses where NAS Daily has posted about Ben like eight times, eight videos about him. And he has 46 million followers. They are obviously doing really well in terms of going to onboard more people through their courses, like Nas Daily's courses, and then funnel them straight into Curious Addies. Like, why would I not invest in something like that? It's like stupid how low their price is right now because I'm like, just you wait when <laughs> a million people go through this course. Like the first step is buy Curious Addies and it's like 0.2 right now. It's crazy. And then like Meta Angels, it's like the founders. Let me actually look at the company. Meta Angels founder was... A YC founder was growing businesses for the last 10 years and she actually founded this company, which I used to follow during my Austin days religiously. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's making an NFT project. And the execution was just flawless. Also quite innovative in like their lending ability for in the smart contract. So now they have built this new mechanism where you can lend your NFT to somebody so that they can get temporary access. Something I really wanted, but you have to build in the smart contract to begin with. But I was like, that will change how other people start building their smart contracts as well. So I have 100% conviction in this team too. So that's kind of like what I look at. And how do you find these people? Because they're not at the top of the list on OpenSea. So you have to really dig down. It's all on Twitter. I never look at what OpenSea is recommending. I actually never look at OpenSea unless it's just to purely search for the project itself. But everything is on Twitter, getting a pulse of what people are talking about. 
um, seeing what is being recommended by different people, and then going to the discords and looking at the communities. It's all Twitter and Discord. Like that's the true places. Do you have any particular profiles that you would recommend just in terms of people starting their journey and but they have no idea where to even start in Twitter and Discord? I honestly can't recommend it because I have I'm in a very small niche and there's just so many things with NFTs like P2E, play to earn games. There's music NFTs, video NFTs, women NFTs. The people that I follow are like project people. And then I generally look at what people are talking about and I look into those projects and see how I feel about them. If I look at a project and I like what it's doing, then I would generally look at who started it, what their profile is. There are a lot of educational courses like Shifi is really good. We three. They're all like women communities that help get you educated in all aspects of Web3, like DeFi, NFTs, DAOs, etc. Like that are all aspects rather than just purely NFTs. So I would recommend those starting points. And also obviously wow cases. And before we wrap up, one final question. What is the craziest thing that has happened in your crypto NFT journey? One week after I minted, I had a call with Randy Zuckerberg. I was like, that's crazy. Who knew that it was just one degree connection away? I think the space is just crazy as well because you would literally have something, you know, that you bought for $400 now worth $50,000, $60,000 and you're like, oh, seems a bit low, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then you equally have really crazy stuff on a regular basis, it's like getting hacked. I had my whole wallet drained. I lost maybe like 20 ETH. So that's pretty crazy overnight you realize how much you should value your security because if you get your Facebook hacked, like no one cares, you just reset your password. You're not losing much. But if you get your wallet hacked, you're losing a lot of money. The more sophisticated hackers get, the more important cybersecurity is. You know, you really have to re-educate yourself on how not to not survive in this new Wild West era. <laughs> well, Lily, I really enjoyed this conversation. Do you feel like you found your why? So like how I think about my why is I tend to look at my journey as like, first of all, the direction that I'm heading into, whether or not they fit my values. And if they fit my values, then I will head towards that direction. For a, the first time, I've felt a really strong why in terms of all of the things I am personally super passionate about has come into one thing because I've always felt like I have to segment parts of myself where I am creative, but you know, that's just one part of me. I am a business person, but also when I am with other business people, I feel like I'm not as businessy as them. And I still am very creative and more like out there. Or I go into tech and I don't feel like I'm fully like a technologist either, you know, and I always felt like, you know, I was very passionate about women because, you know, I was helping, I was an ambassador for future females and helping women entrepreneurs. But that was also kind of like another thing. And so finally, this is one thing where I'm combining creativity, community, technology, business and women empowerment all in one. And I think that the ability to create impact through helping others and fulfilling like what I really like enjoy and really believe in is a strong enough why for me. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? 
I don't place too much emphasis on a legacy. I think as long as I'm doing something that can potentially impact someone at some level, that's good enough. Actually, I've been working on kind of shrinking that idea of a legacy, that egocentric perspective, because I think that sometimes people think that everything that you need to do has to revolve around you leaving some sort of amazing impact. You have to be kind of like the da Vinci of your time. I was actually listening to this podcast, which talks about the universe is so big. Human history is probably only like 13 generations old and you are just like a tiny blip. You're just this tiny little thing. And I think that's actually quite relieving because you just do you. Whatever you believe is meaningful to you, like that's enough impact. It doesn't have to be like changing people's lives. Like even if you find enjoyment in drawing, it's already valuable. So that's kind of what I think. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? I would deem success when you really are able to be true to yourself and actually do the things that you really want to do. Um, and you feel meaning and fulfillment in the things that you are doing. And where can people go to connect with you, find out what you're doing, what WellPeace is up to? You can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, NFT Lily is my handle. Wild Pixies, Wild Pixies NFT on Twitter, and you can find me on Instagram as well. And that was the end of episode 77. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywhy.com forward slash 77. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to send a tweet at sothismywhyp1 to let us know. And stay tuned for next Sunday. Because remember Group Heart, the NFT accelerator that Lily was just talking about? Well, we will be meeting one of the co-founders to dive even deeper into the world of NFTs, DAOs, community building in the Web3 world, and so much more from the perspective of an investor. So don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and see you next Sunday.